0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly
0: Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
1: Tracy, we're finally doing it. I know. (laughs) Um, Today we're finally going to talk about a pair of brothers who have literally been on my list. For the podcast since the day that Tracy and I started working on it. So that's more than four years yeah, that I've I, just been hanging on to this one.
0: I similarly have things that have been on the list for that long. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And sometimes part of it, I don't do those because I'm like, no, that's really self-serving and like um you know it will just be like my hobby fun things but at the same time life is short and they have a fun story uh so the reason that i have always wanted to cover the lumiere brothers is that they were really prolific inventors and we're going to talk about the innovations in developing motion pictures for which they are most well-known. I think if you ask most people, they can tell you that they were involved in early motion pictures. But we're also going to talk about other inventions that legitimately changed human culture in really significant ways. And there is so much here that we're actually going to give them a two-parter. So in the first episode, we're going to talk about the family business that their father started and how one of them came up with an invention when he was still a teenager that basically set up their family for life financially and enabled them to experiment and invent without worrying about money. And in the second part, uh, we'll cover some of the massive success that the Lumiere family experienced in an industry that they never really meant to get into in the first place. We'll talk about a lot of that in the first part, too, but... um, We will kind of discuss then how they diversified their interests and went in other directions.
0: Auguste Lumiere was born on October 19th, 1862, and his brother Louis was born two years later. Both of them October babies. His brother was born October 5th, 1864. They weren't the only two children in the family. There was also a sister named Jeanne and a brother named Edouard. And their father, Antoine Lumière, was in his
1: early 20s when the boys were born. And after marrying Jeanne-Josephine Costille at 19, Antoine had first started working painting signs and then as a painter of portraits. But eventually, he, who was a very curious man about the world, became interested in photography. And combining his painting experience with this new medium, he opened his own photography studio where he specialized in portrait photography.
0: In 1870, when Auguste and Louis were eight and six, Antoine moved the family to Lyon, France. As the Franco-Prussian War threatened to push into their hometown of Besançon in the eastern side of France, which is near the border with Switzerland. So Lyon is south of there, farther away from the Swiss border, roughly across from where Switzerland's southern border meets Italy's northern border.
1: Yeah, that's just kind of a triangulation note. It's not terribly important if you're having trouble getting the visual there. Uh, Both of the Lumiere boys went to a technical school in Lyon known as La Martiniere. And as teenagers, they joined their father in the family business. And while he was working for the company after graduating from Le Lycee, which is the French word for high school, Louis also attended some college classes
0: at Conservative de Lyon. Louis proved himself to be an innovator right out of the gate by inventing a new type of photographic plate when he was only 17. This plate, which is sometimes called the Etiquette Bleue, the Lumière's name for it, it's a blue label plate or a dry plate. It reduced the need for darkroom development of images.
1: Antoine, their father, anticipating the potential success of Louis's invention, purchased a large tract of land in Lyon's suburb of Montplaisir to set up a much larger operation for their factory. And his foresight was entirely correct, because demand for this product, which made photography much more accessible to a great many more people, was through the roof.
0: The Lumiere Company, which was at that point named Antoine Lumiere & Sons Company, began producing these plates, which were very high quality, in massive numbers, literally millions every year during the busiest years. Louis' invention turned into the primary profit driver for the company, and it made the Lumieres very wealthy. It also made their name synonymous with photography at the time.
1: Yeah, I read in one source that they were making as many as 15 million plates a year. That's a lot. And they were barely keeping up with demand at that point. Uh, so when Louis was 28, he got married to a woman named Jeanne Rose Leonie Winkler uh, on February 2nd of 1893. And on August 31st of that same year, Auguste Lumière also got married to Jeanne's sister, Marie Euphrasie Marguerite Winkler. So two brothers married two sisters.
0: For their father's part, he knew that to stay successful in a field like theirs meant that the company had to be constantly researching and developing new technology. So he used a portion of the millions of francs in profit that Louis' invention had brought in to fund ongoing research projects.
1: Yeah, this really, I mean, I cannot stress enough how much this one thing that Louis invented as a teenager completely enabled them to do And achieve basically everything else they achieved in their lives because they didn't have to worry about money. They could just spend as much time as they needed researching and developing things because their factory was still churning out plates and they were still bringing in profits. So in 1891, Thomas Edison and William Dixon invented the kinetoscope. There's a whole big story around that and who deserves more credit, but that's a little outside the scope of our (laughs) podcast today. Uh, But the kinetoscope was a device that had a peephole for a viewer to look through, and then a strip of film was run through the machine behind a lens with a light bulb behind it. And so the frames of the film strip passing through the machine in this way created a moving picture. That's a concept that's probably pretty easy to access for most of our listeners.
0: Yeah, Initially, Edison believed this project of Dixon's was basically a toy or a diversion. But when they displayed a bunch of kinetoscopes in New York City in 1894, this technology was a huge hit. Spectators happily paid 25 cents apiece to watch five of the short films, which you could only look at one person at a time, by looking through each cabinet's peephole.
1: Yeah, so they would have basically like a parlor full of kinetoscopes, and a person would stand there and just look in one by themselves. Uh, And Antoine Lumiere, again their father, took notice of this new technology. Several months after Edison and Dixon kinetoscopes had made their public debut, Antoine, who had seen one of these machines on display in Paris, approached his son Louis and another employee at their photography company with a small piece of kinetoscope film in his hand. He explained that Edison was making the film in the U.S. and selling it for a lot of money, and that they should start making it too so that they could become the French manufacturers of it.
0: So this meant that not only did they have to manufacture the film itself with its sprocket holes along the edge, they also had to make a camera that could make use of it.
1: So it was initially Auguste and not Louis who took a stab at building this camera, but success really eluded him. And then Louis also started tinkering it, but his attempt fell short. They just couldn't figure it out. Uh and they knew plenty about still photography cameras. I mean, that was their family business. They were not only making a lot of money at it, they were very good at it. They were really astute. Um, and they knew how to capture images. But getting the film to advance one frame at a time to capture a series of still images that would convey movement when shown in sequence was a huge leap in terms of technology. And they just couldn't figure out for a while how to make it happen.
0: So in just a moment, we will tell you what other invention finally gave Louis Lumiere the idea that would solve this camera dilemma. But first, we will pause for a word from one of our sponsors.
1: It was one of my favorite inventions, the sewing machine, uh, that gave Louis a bolt of inspiration. The story goes that uh, he had chronic insomnia. That was true. But the story part is that he had this revelation late one night when he couldn't sleep. And as he sat there sleepless, he was thinking And in that way that sometimes your brain will put together great ideas when it's not occupied doing other things. Uh, He thought about the way a sewing machine makes a stitch in a piece of fabric and then advances the fabric to make the next stitch.
0: It occurred to Louis that he could build a similar mechanism to advance film in a camera. The shutter would open to capture an image, and then as it closed, a little claw-like mechanism would grab the perforations on the sides of the film then pull it down to the next frame. These claws would release just as the shutter opened for the next image and then grab the perforations again when the shutter closed, and so on. Yeah, I had really never thought about
1: it until um, learning this little tidbit, how similar they actually are. Yeah. And
0: I was like, oh. oh. Like they, made little, they made little feed dogs.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, so Louis based his camera for capturing motion on the cameras that the Lumieres had been using in their business to take still photos. He had to attach a crank to run the film advancement system, but even so, this apparatus was far smaller and lighter than the kinetograph that Edison and Dixon were using to make films. It came in at just 16 pounds, which is 7.3 kilograms. That's still heavy if you handed someone a 16-pound camera today, but it was suddenly way portable in a way that cameras were not up to that point.
0: But Louis knew that the family, if the family business really wanted to corner the European market for moving photography, they could not just make the film and the camera to use it. They also needed to figure out how to print film from negatives and then a way to show these films to observers. It was a whole system, not just camera and film. Right.
1: And while Louis had really kind of taken a much smaller approach to uh, building his camera in comparison to Edison and Dixon, he really thought much bigger than they did when it came to showing films. So instead of creating another machine like the Kinetoscope that could only offer viewings to one person at a time, Louis really wanted groups of people to be able to experience watching moving pictures together.
0: It was this idea that led to their development of film projection. Louis Lumiere basically devised a very similar idea for advancing a piece of film frame by frame, 16 frames a second, opening and closing a shutter as it went, with a light source from behind the film projecting it onto a screen or a wall.
1: So, yeah, not surprising. Just the same way they were taking it was also kind of how they were showing it. Uh, And if you've ever wondered how films got the nickname Flicks, you can thank this early technology. Louis' shutter apparatus meant that the light was cut off for the briefest fraction of a second in between frames as the shutter was closing, giving it a flickering effect. And eventually, movies shown with this system got the nickname Flickers, which of course got shortened over time to Flicks. So today, whenever someone calls a film a flick, they're actually referencing the earliest parts of film history, although I doubt many think about it that way.
0: But what's really fantastic about all this work that Louis Lumiere was doing was that all of these functions he was inventing, the film advancement, the processing of the film, the projection, all of that together, was all integrated into one machine called the cinematograph. So it was kind of a wonder.
1: Yeah, I, um in my head, I like to imagine him going, no, just keep cramming it into that one, <laughs> because it is a lot to put into one thing. And they still kept it fairly small. So in the patent for the cinematograph filed jointly by Louis and Auguste on February 13th of 1895, it was described as follows, and of course this is a translation, quote, the mechanism of this apparatus has the essential character of acting intermittently on a ribbon regularly perforated so as to print successive displacements separated by the rest periods during which occurs either the impression or the viewings of the images. So basically it's just saying we've invented this thing that pulls film through and it opens one frame at a time and you will either be capturing movies on it or watching movies on it through this this function. And that patent was actually amended on March 30th to reflect some updates that they had made to the mechanism that slightly elongated the time that the shutter remained open for both capturing images and for viewing.
0: Just to be clear, as is true of pretty much Any invention we could be talking about on the show, the Lumiere's cinematograph did not just happen. They obviously didn't have the idea in a vacuum, because we already mentioned their father wanting to get in on the market of film that Edison's lab had started up. But in addition to Edison and to the kinetoscope he and Dixon created, there were so many other inventors all looking into ways that motion pictures could be made.
1: And we're going to just touch on a couple because these are some that are often referenced as being influential in terms of giving Louis some ideas as he was going. One of these was Charles-Émile Reynaud, who had been working on a technology to create and show animated films, so hand-drawn, not captured photographic films, since the 1870s, when he invented a device called a praxinoscope that improved on the zoetrope. So this allowed for characters in an animated scene to be drawn on a strip and then set into differing backgrounds. His, his system is sometimes referred to with a magic lantern uh, involved. And in the 1880s, Renault worked on an animated moving picture projection system that was based on this praxinoscope called the Théâtre Optique. And this device was, as we said, a complicated expansion on the praxinoscope. It was much bigger, uh, and it used a system of mirrors and lights to project the animation onto a screen or a wall life-size.
0: In addition to Renault, another Frenchman, Louis Leprance, had made strides in developing his own motion picture camera, which used a single roll of film that unfurled from one spool as it was used, and then was wound onto another spool after exposure. A documentary was produced two years ago promoting the belief that he had actually beaten Edison to inventing a technology that could capture moving pictures Le Prince may have emerged as a dominant name in the world of motion picture technology had he not suddenly vanished in 1890.
1: Yeah, he is absolutely also on my list of episodes to do because his disappearance is a great history mystery to talk about. But the point is, uh, the Lumieres knew that other people were working in this field, and they understood completely that they were in a race to establish their name as the one that was linked to this new technology. But what's really fortunate for them is that they were not just unknown visionaries that were like tinkering in a garage or their lab. They already had a steady and impressive income to help fund their research and development, as we said. But they also had brand recognition as the portrait photographers in
0: Europe. The Cinematograph was patented on February 13th, 1895. They made their first film a little more than a month later on March 19th. That initial effort featured the employees of the Lumiere factory leaving their jobs for the day. It was given a rather unimaginative title. In English, it was Workers Leaving the Lumiere Factory. You can see it online. The title definitely gives you the truth of what you'll see. People walking out of a factory and then a car driving out. There's also a large dog that runs in and out of the frame several times.
1: Yeah, that dog is the star of the show as far as I'm concerned. But it is uh, Truth in Advertising. You'll get exactly what they tell you the title is. They were not really big on um crazy titles, the years. Over the next several months, the brothers showed their work in private screenings for professional interest organizations and hobby organizations, including the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry and the Congress of the French Photographic Society. And in the case of the Photographic Society, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, they actually captured members of that group on film one day to be part of the screening that they showed them as a demonstration the following day. And this definitely made a strong impression for those people to sit there and watch themselves on screen uh, as part of this whole debut
0: of this new technology. At the end of the year, on December 28, 1895, at the Salon Indien de Grand Café in Paris, Auguste and Louis screened their films for a paying audience for the first time. They ran 10 films, each of which ran about 50 seconds long, and it's the first known instance of films being showed to a paying audience. That also represented a shift in how the brothers saw their
1: work. And coming up, we're going to delve into the Lumiere's transition into film exhibition as a business, but we're first going to have a little sponsor break. his development of the cinematograph and Auguste was was working on it with him. The idea was that they were going to show what all could be done with this new camera that they were making so they could sell it. Uh, But as they toured around showing colleagues what this camera was capable of uh, leading up to that public screening,
0: they actually started to realize that there was money to be made in the entertainment industry. That first audience, which consisted of 35 people, had paid one franc each to watch the program in the cafe's basement. That was an arrangement which Antoine Lumiere had managed. Those 35 were quick to describe the amazing films they had seen projected onto a sheet while they sat in the dark. And soon the Lumieres were making more than 10,000 francs each week. They were running multiple shows every day to try to keep up with demand. And there were still hours-long waits for the audiences. Yeah, those uh,
1: that first three dozen people basically walked out and were like, you guys got to see this. Uh, and everybody agreed that they should. Uh, and the brothers also made new films to keep audiences coming back. So they branched out from their documentary-style reels to telling some sort of narrative fictional stories with their short films. We'll talk about some of the specifics in a moment. One of their films, which gained a lot of attention early on, was The Arrival of a Train at Ciotat Station. Uh, This particular film runs about 50 seconds and features, as the title suggests, a train pulling into the station. And it's filmed from the station, so the audience gets a perspective of seeing the train coming down the tracks toward them.
0: The initial audience reaction to this film is one of those items in history that has become the matter of discussion. There are accounts that claim that the audience was terrified by the experience of watching a train coming at them and that they screamed and even fled. Others say this is squarely in the realm of urban legend, that the reaction was a lot more subdued. So exactly how the Parisians of the day responded to this, is probably never going to be known. This whole panicked reaction version that has traction over the years, uh, that probably is just because it's a juicier story. Yeah, there is. I haven't looked at the primary
1: source, but I saw it reported several places. There was apparently a contemporary newspaper report that said that people were terrified. And I kind of get the vibe that that was very much a sensationalized story. Like, But because it is one of the few contemporary yeah. descriptions, that's why this sort of hangs on forever. It seems more
0: likely that people maybe gasped in astonishment. Yeah. And then some, <laughs> someone reporting was like, screams of terror at cinema. Right. Or
1: I could even see one person leaning back and then it <laughs> suddenly ballooning into. Yeah. Everyone was petrified. Uh, so you'll sometimes see it reported that way. Odds are that's not how it went down at all. Uh, the Lumiere's early films also featured another movie first. And this is really interesting to me. Product placement, which we just dis- often discuss. You know, if you're into movies at all, people talk about how more modern film era uh movies have been victimized by product placement, but they it was done from the very beginning. Uh in a film titled The Card Game, beer from their father-in-law's brewery was actually featured as their father their father-in-law and another man play a game of cards together in the film a waiter is summoned and asked to bring refreshments and he brings beer this is from their brewery and he the uh, and then viewers get to watch as the bottle is poured into three glasses it kind of takes its time getting poured beautifully and then all the men drink together and that's pretty much the whole movie <laughs>
0: Obviously, these films were largely documentary in nature. The brothers were generally using their technology to capture what life was like in Lyon. They weren't really developing some kind of narrative fiction. Uh, Yeah, we'll talk about how
1: they did some fiction here in a moment, but not really like full stories. Uh, One movie that they made called feeding the baby was simply Auguste Lumiere and his wife feeding their infant child. Again, there's truth in advertising. Um, the also unimaginatively named the photographical Congress arrives in Lyon just shows dozens of people getting off of a boat. You would never know that they were interested in photography. If it weren't in the title, uh, the film fishing for goldfish features a very young child. I'm not sure if it's the same child as the one that gets fed in feeding the baby. um, unsuccessfully attempting to try to catch fish in a large bowl. It's basically a tiny child sticking its hand in a a big fish bowl. And then another one called The Sea shows five men jumping off of a dock into choppy water, and then they make their way back up to the shore and get on the dock and run to the end and jump in again, and they kind of just play
0: out that cycle. So these are all pretty straightforward, but that initial group of motion pictures wasn't without bits of comedy. The film titled The Sprinkled Sprinkler Shows a garden, a gardener watering plants with a hose when a boy sneaks up behind him and steps on the hose, which stops the flow of water. When the perplexed gardener points the nozzle at himself to see what the trouble is, the boy steps off of the hose and the gardener gets a dousing and then chases the boy down, uh, and not quite as funny, spanks him.
1: Yeah, there's actually a lot of people getting spanked in these movies. It doesn't look particularly violent.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but I was
1: like, really, again, with the spanking? As I was looking at them the other night.
0: I'm like, oh, again? Spanking used to be a lot less controversial than it is now. Yeah,
1: and some of it is definitely um, more of what you would... It's kind of like the comedy swat on the tail end. It's not really like a forceful thing. Um which happens in our next film we're going to talk about called Jumping the Blanket, which is also kind of a light comedy. Uh, It features four men holding the corners of a blanket while a fifth man attempts to jump into it. And his initial efforts fall short, for which he is spanked (laughs) this time by a man who is perhaps a soldier or a policeman. He's just a man standing by in what looks like a uniform. The jumper eventually manages a successful jump onto the blanket, which results in some rather graceful acrobatics as the four men that are holding the corners flip him out of the blanket again. And he completes several more jump and flip combinations with varying degrees of success. It definitely looks like he is a trained performer.
0: Horse Trick Riders is similar in tone to the Blanket movie. A man tries several times to mount a very patient horse while another man stands by, alternately either helps or chastises the would-be rider. It becomes very obvious that the unsuccessful horse rider really is a skilled gymnast because he falls in the most graceful ways imaginable. And again, this horse is extremely patient. There is also spanking in this
1: movie. (laughs) It's like every time he fails, the guy gets him and swats him on the behind and tries to lift him back on the horse. See, now it's just weird. It's a theme for their films. I don't know. Um, so these earliest films were actually shot on the second prototype camera that Louis had built. Although the brothers soon made more of them. Uh, Louis actually collaborated with a Parisian engineer named Jules Carpentier. Uh, to refine the camera and make it suitable for mass production. Like, at that point, they had basically been using things that could not just be duplicated. Um, Carpentier had actually attended one of the Lumiere's private screenings in March of 1895, and he immediately had reached out to them to offer his assistance on future iterations of their work.
0: They did not sell the mass-produced cameras as they'd originally planned, though. Instead, they trained a large staff of men to make films. Once the training was complete, they sent them in to travel throughout Europe under the Lumiere banner, making new movies and showing them in the same town where they were shot.
1: From a business perspective, this was incredibly astute. It spread the business name around and it got it associated with this new technology. And it obviously showed the amazing capabilities of the cinematograph to make movies on the go. And it immensely increased the company's catalog of films, as this small army of filmmakers created more and more content everywhere they went.
0: And of course, when you hand a new piece of technology to somebody, they will figure out new ways to use it. This new group of filmmakers tried new things. One of them created the first moving shot when he attached the camera to a gondola in Venice. Soon, all the cameramen were told to include similar shots in their films, per the Lumieres. So... At this point, the Lumiere's successful photography
1: business, successful manufacturers got into motion pictures and they're now wildly successful. And that is actually where we're going to end this episode. Um, and we're actually going to talk in the next one about how the Lumiere's gained international acclaim and then left motion pictures to pursue other interests.
0: Do you have listener mail for us also?
1: I do. I figured I would link this one to a listener mail about another film podcast we did recently, which was The Murder of William Desmond Taylor. This is from our listener, Catherine. She says, hi, ladies, I was just listening to your podcast on the William Desmond Taylor case mere moments ago and all of the several highly plausible suspects. I personally think uh, Charlotte Shelby Shelby is the most likely of the bunch. I know that someone was seen near Taylor's home that didn't match her description at all. But a thought occurred to me to explain this that turns this case into more of a weird detective novel. She hired a killer to do the deed for her. I have zero serious evidence for this, and it's mostly a joke explanation. But she strikes me as being shrewd enough and crazy stage mom enough to pull something like this. If she wanted him out of the picture, it seems to me that she would want to distance herself and her daughter from the case as much as possible. Therefore, enter the hitman. Obviously, if that was her goal, it didn't work that well since she still got heavily investigated for the murder and her daughter's career kind of tanked anyway. I personally do not like the blackmailers did it theory unless we also assume that the murder was accidental. It seems to me that as menacing as they can be, any serious blackmailers would want to keep him alive. How else are you going to get anything out of him? Maybe I'm just not nefarious enough to imagine a reasonable explanation for killing your target on purpose. There's such a wide range of suspects that Occam's razor doesn't really work super well for this case. There are simply too many simple answers available. Since the case is so cold by now, we might as well say that ghosts did it. I'm fine with that. Cases like this are particularly why I love your podcast. It's always fun to hear a cool historical story or learn about people who did amazing things, for better or worse. But it's especially fantastic when we get episodes that are stimulating to the imagination. I can't count how many times I've thought that someone should work this or that mystery or scenario or a particular historical tidbit into a novel or TV show while listening to your podcast and end up spending a lot of time thinking of all the ways that that could play out. That always makes the workday go by a little faster. Your podcast is truly a gift. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was lovely. You kind of point out exactly why I really like that particular story, which is that there are too many explanations, all of which would make sense. Uh, So we'll never, ever know. There may have been a cover-up. Yeah, William Desmond Taylor remains fascinating to me. Even after we finish that episode, I found myself thinking about it a lot. Uh, if you would like to write to us your theories on who killed William Desmond Taylor or anything else, you can do so at History Podcast at com. We are also available across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. And you can also visit us on our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find the back catalog of every episode of the show ever show notes and sources for any of the shows that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as occasional other fun tidbits. So come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com and we'll uh, run through history together.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.